well, um, Brett and I got back last night from Rosarita, Mexico. Uh, drove there to do a couples conference at what is now, I think it is now the largest Calvary Chapel in Mexico. There's probably close to 1,500 people attending a church. It went in the last five years from about 200 believers to 1,500. They're exploding. A neat revival going on there. They're planting churches all over the Baja region. And uh, I'd heard about the church. I was interested in, in connecting with the church. I'd gotten a call a ways back when I just started the campaign for city council. And uh, the assistant pastor there who oversees a couple's ministry, his name is Jeff Johnson, and he used to be the pastor of Calvary Chapel Carpinteria. And when Britt Merrick came into town, the church kind of uh, just dwindled a little bit, and he just turned it over to Britt. And, and then he went into as a loan officer for a bank until his kids graduated, and then he went into uh, missionary work. So he's been in Germany and Uganda, and now he's full-time in Mexico. So we went down to Rosary Estate at his place and, um, and then did the couples conference. Um, and and I, he had called me and asked if I'd do it, and I said, you know, I'm in the middle of a campaign. If I get elected, I, I doubt I'll be able to, but I'll put it on my calendar. And it just happened that the council would get the month of August off, and I thought, yeah, I'll do it, not realizing that, you know, I was going to be in Ireland, then I'd go to uh, Atlanta, San Diego, uh, then I'd go to Mexico, and I'd come back tomorrow, i leave for Austin. I'm like, what have I done? And I was, I was tired, and I'd gotten sick in San Diego, and, and I was just kind of whining and complaining, and you know, Brett, Mr. Barnabas, he's like, hey, praise God, I'll drive you, we'll have a great time, and we'll have so, so much fun, and I'm like, why did I agree to this? Oh, people are going to be blessed, praise the Lord, bro, we'll do this, and, you know, he shows up at my house, and he's driving the whole way, and he's just talking about how wonderful it's going to be, and, and I'm, I'm complaining the whole way. I'm, I'm, I'm like, hey, Brett, you know, I, I called this guy Jeff, I mean, I didn't, I, he's, a, he's odd, and the reason why he's odd is because he's different than me. And, and, uh, and, and I, he had called me in the midst of, like, I was super busy, and I had a bunch of stuff to do, and he said, I need outlines on all four of your messages. And I said, four? And he goes, yeah, you're not going to get out till late in the afternoon. I go, oh, man, it's not, we're going to get back to late. And I go, well, we need four messages, three on Saturday, one on Friday night. Okay, outlines. I don't do outlines. We, I need outlines, and I need questions for the, the, the breakout sessions, and I need those in a couple hours. Oh, my God. I don't have a couple, uh, and he was persistent. So you know, I'm a servant, you know. <laughs> so you know, I, I I labored and I put this together and I mailed them and I'm like, jeepers, how is? Why did I? I kept saying, why did I agree to this? And then now it's time to leave. I don't want to go. Brett shows up. He's all Mr. Bubbly, and we're driving down there. And and uh, you know, it wasn't hard getting across the border. But while we're driving down there, Brett, you know, again, Mr. Barnabas. He calls this Jeff guy, and he goes, hey, bro, is there anything we can do for you while we're coming down? And, you know, when you say something like that, you're saying it out of niceness. You don't want them to respond, you know? And he's all, yeah, praise the Lord. Why don't you bring us dessert for 150? I'm like, are you, are you serious? 150? I mean, I'm going to drive down there. It's a lot of gas. It's five hours. Across uh, the border, a lot of time. Now we're going to lay out cash for 150. We're going to have to pay toll to get through. We're going to have to buy. This. I'm calculating. I don't got kind of my. Okay, we stop and get Krispy Kreme stacks of donuts. I mean, super. I mean, that's dessert to me. If if you don't agree, I just <laughs> and you know sampled a little bit while we were there. Just <laughs> and uh, we we get there and the accommodations. Uh, they nice little humble place there near the beach and. 
and uh, the bed was real short, and my feet were on the wall, and, and I, I gave, because Brett's big, and he had the other one, I, I know his feet were hanging over his bed, and, and uh, uh, the toilet facilities were not what we're accustomed to, a little strange, I won't go into detail, uh, and they were right next to a beach you couldn't swim in because of the toilet issues, which I won't go into detail. Um, and, and I'm, you know, and, and he's, he's not the most endearing guy. And he's throwing these little things out there that are barbish, like hurting you. And I, I'm getting a little tweaked, you know, and, uh, kind of lamenting to Brett, you know, this just doesn't seem like a gift of hospitality to me. I don't understand how this is. Praise the Lord, bro. People are getting blessed and God's doing such wonderful things. And da, 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 da. I'm like, shut up, you know, and I, I want someone to commiserate with me. And, uh, and he's just all bubbly and, and, and I, you know, and I, I, I share the word and I'm loving on the folks and in between sessions, I'm tolerating him, you know, we got there and the first thing he said, we don't have enough servers. You guys, Brett, I'm going to need Brett to serve the food. I go, Oh, I'm not going to. So I start serving, you know, and I'm going, and he's sitting down while Brett and I are serving dinner, you know, and I'm. And people think, hey, gracias por todo, hey, de nada, no es problema. Mi español es muy mal, perdóname. Me. Yeah, and I'm trying my best to speak Spanish, and here's some food, you know. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, what a servant I am. I'm putting the plates out there, just, you know, feeling good about myself. <laughs> no thank you, no nothing, you know, and, and uh, it, was, it was rough. And, uh, and then, you know, I get there and I want to see the questions that I had labored so much to, in, the bull, in the packet he'd put together and they're not there. And he goes, oh yeah, I got them. And I gave them to someone else. They didn't get it done. So, you know, it just, I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> I just want to punch you. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> that's irritating. And Brett's like, praise the Lord. You know, they'll put them on the overhead. People have better view of them. It'll be really great. And again, shut up, you know. <laughs> And, and I, I go to the guy, and he has games scheduled for the third event, which is going to take us late into the afternoon. I'm like, can we cut the games back and just let me do the message, and you guys can do games? No, we're going to do games first. I'm like, oh, really? No yielding. And uh, Brett's like, well, you know, it'll work, and it'll work. We're so great. And, and we go long, and we've got, you know, two-hour wait in the border to get across. And, and Brett's driving the whole way, and nothing but joy going across the border. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I almost crushed this thing because I was so not in a servant mode. I serve the folks as I was speaking, but I remember what Gladys Alward said. And if you've ever seen the end of The Seventh Happiness, uh, Ingrid Bergman, it was about a, a missionary woman by the name of Gladys Alward. She was uh, a servant in an aristocratic home in England um, during the time of Charles Spurgeon. And uh, she wanted to be a missionary so bad. So she took on employment uh, as a housemaid in a very rich home. And her job was to clean all the bedchambers. Um, and she was to arrive after they left and complete her work before they returned. So she was to remain invisible. And she had penned these words that have lasted with me uh, since I've been a Christian, or I should say since I've read her book. She said, you know, a servant speaks when they're spoken to and they offer their opinion when they're asked. And then she said, and I came to find that the truest test of a servant is how you act when you're being treated like one. And God said that that if you want to be great in his kingdom, you're a servant of all. And, and Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And he said, a friend loves at all times. And, and this idea of loving Jeff in spite of the inability to dance with him and not under, and, and his wife is amazing. And I knew he's a good guy because he couldn't be married to a woman like that. That's what people say about me. 
And, and he is a good guy, and he's doing a good work. I just didn't get him. And, and, uh, and Brett, it was like water off a duck's back. And, and I, I just kept reflecting, and I just thought, you know, Lord, maybe they learn from what I was teaching, but I learn by what I wasn't doing. And, and he tenderly spoke to my heart, and he was sweet about it. And I was going to finish John chapter 12, uh, which is the triumphal entry, but I thought every Palm Sunday I do... Uh, the, the triumphal entry. And I've done that message a number of times. You can go online and get it. So I thought I'll just move into chapter 13. And I was, you know, preparing a lot of messages. So it was, it was one that I, I didn't have a lot of time. And so I, I switched gears and went to John 13. <laughs> Why did I do that? John 13, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I thought the Lord is very irritating that way. And I think Brett prayed, oh God, you know. And, and so uh, I'm here, we're going to be in John 13. And a lot of you think John 13, washing the disciples' feet, is about humility. Uh, this is a profound lesson, and, and God used the trip to Mexico. Jeff Johnson, Brett Schallabarger, and all the lovely people at Calvary Chapel Rosarita put this together. And this is a gift from them, not me. The Lord used their lives to touch me in this message. So open up to John 13. If you don't have a Bible, these folks will get you one. Raise your hand, they'll hand it to you. You know, I, and the other thing I was thinking too, and Brett's uncomfortable, but I shared it in first service. I didn't expect him to be in second. He did all the driving. And, you know, to think that, that you know, my life was imposed upon, he was away from his family. He, he was serving, he was diligent, he was running to and fro. You know, I'd left my bag at the house, he drove back to get my bag. Everywhere I turned, he was doing something to make my life easier. I wasn't doing that for Jeff. And um, I just want to let everyone in this congregation know, you, you may agree or disagree with the pastor's teaching, but there is no way you're going to find fault with his staff. We have the finest staff on the face of the earth. We have servants, Amen. amen. All right, uh, last service, before you do this, last service I said stand for the reading of the word of the Lord and someone goes, amen. And, uh, and I, I commended them because we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord and then we sit for the word of the teacher. And I've said this before, one, we honor when we stand, that's the Lord. And the other, we tolerate, which is my teaching. Some people don't tolerate it well, but still, we're gonna, we're gonna stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. So stand with me if you would. We're gonna... Oh, and by the way, chapters 13 through, through 17, 24-hour period of Jesus' life. John was the youngest apostle. He was 16 when Jesus called him. He's writing now, and it's been 60 years. He's going to be the oldest living apostle. He was the youngest called apostle. He's writing this account, and he takes a 24-hour period, and he puts it from, verse, from chapters 13 to 17. Had the rest of the apostles who written the Gospels or, or the other authors of the Gospels taken this much time through the entirety of Jesus' life, the, the, old, the New Testament would be exponentially larger. He is writing down everything he can remember from the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And so he takes 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of the chapters, and we're going to see that. And so this is the Passover. Jesus has already entered into Jerusalem, and the Passover is coming. And he sits down for the Passover meal, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, everyone say knew, please. 
When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And please say end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel which was, which, with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, and therefore he said, You are not all clean, meaning Judas. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, he sat down again, and he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Now, this is, this is the application of the text for us, because Jesus is asking them, and he's going to ask us, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them, Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. I pray that you'd lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit. Minister now as we long to be your servants in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. There's uh, some denominations in Christendom that have taken this passage and they've made it a sacrament, uh, a, a holy act that they uh, apply every uh, Sunday. And uh, the entire congregation, part of the church service is they wash one another's feet. I do not want to be a part of a congregation like that. Uh, I've seen your feet. <laughs> and God forbid you see mine. I have good feet, but I mean, like my dad, he, he had three tours of Vietnam and I, I don't, you know, Navy showers. And I, he came back with I mean, his toes were the nastiest looking nails I've ever seen. He'd take his shoes off and the kid's like, oh, and he'd go, and he'd chase you. And it was pleasant uh, childhood memories just flooding (laughs) into my mind. And all of you were sickened by them. This isn't an admonition to physically wash one another's feet, although it's, it's precious when you see it at a wedding or you, you, you've seen the symbolic nature of it. There's something significant in that, and it's, it's not uh, wrong to do that. But to have it as a sacrament in the church is not what Jesus is saying here. This is, this is not the point of the text, because he'll describe what the point of the text is. He said, do you know why I've done this? And, and, and you'll see it in a moment. Fascinating, though, is that the triumphal entries come, and Jesus is entering into Jerusalem to participate in the longest-running family meal in the history of the world. And that longest-running family meal in the history of the world is the Passover meal that Jews celebrate to this day. We as a church celebrate Passover. Pastor Marty uh, puts it on. The Passover meal was instigated and established when the Jews left Egypt. 
And the plagues were coming, and the Pharaoh wouldn't release the Hebrews, and God had set out a series of plagues to break the, the heart, or should say break the will of Pharaoh to release the, the Hebrew captives, the slaves. And he wouldn't do it, and he said the final plague is going to be the angel of death coming to kill the firstborn in every family. And he said, but the angel of death will pass over the homes that have the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. And so they would sacrifice this lamb. It would be a one-year lamb, and they would, they would kill the lamb. The blood would go into the basin of the door, and with a hyssop branch, a type of a tree, they would dip the hyssop branch into the blood that was mixed in the basin, where you would typically wash your feet when you come into a home because everyone wore sandals. And they would dip it in the blood, and they'd put it on the top of the door and on the sides of the door. The blood would be here and on the top and in the basin. And as you can see where the blood exists is a picture of the cross uh, where blood is poured out and the crown of thorns on the top where where it was placed on Jesus' head. And then the the sides of the door where the blood was was where the nails were in his feet or his hands. And then the nail in his feet is the blood in the basin. And so this is a picture of the Passover lamb. And Jesus would be the lamb that would be slain from the foundation of the world for the forgiveness of the world's sins for those who would trust in him. And he would pour out his blood to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The, the wages of sin is death and blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. I can't shed my blood for you because my blood is tainted and so is yours. But Jesus was without sin and he died. You receive that by faith and, and the angel of death passes over you. As Christians, we don't die. We fall asleep and awaken in the image of Christ. Born twice, we fall asleep once. And so with this picture uh, of the Passover, they're celebrating the Passover. And at this point, this is going to be the most spectacular Passover in the history of the world because now the Lamb of God is going to be slain. Jesus is going to be the sacrificial lamb. He will be crucified, hung on a cross. All of his blood will be poured out for the remission of the world's sins. The angel of death, for those who trust in that blood, will pass over. And, and you, your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. You'll have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I've told you this so that you may know you have eternal life. This is the promise of a Christian life, receiving Christ as your Savior, eternal life. So Christ is coming to be the Passover lamb. And, this is a, and, and they're celebrating the Passover meal. They're around uh, this, this tr- uh, tr- trivium. It's a three-angled table. So it's like this and like this. And then the people would serve in the middle of this U-shaped table. And the table was low, and they kind of lean on each other. And it was a great way to eat, because typically when you have a huge meal, you just want to lie down. Well, they already start lying down before they eat. It's a great way to do it. I think we should bring it back, quite frankly. <laughs> And, and so they're celebrating this meal, but prior to the meal, they have to wash. And uh, typically, what would happen is a servant would come in to wash the feet because the feet were filthy. Uh, even if you travel to Jerusalem today, they have paved roads and they have sidewalks. But still, the dust, especially that comes in from Egypt, and it's an arid climate. There's dirt everywhere. It gets on your shoes. You walk around bare feet. You're just, they're dirty. They have um, uh, travertine floors that are always dusty. This is what Israel's like. Well, imagine Israel without paved streets and, and sidewalks. It's all dirt, and the whole place is a dust bowl. So, you know, you, you, you've washed in the morning, but you start through the day, and your feet are covered in filth. And the servant would wash the feet so you don't have to be leaning and laying down and having to smell somebody's, you know, feet, which would really change the desire of the meal, uh, unless you're serving, like, uh, some, you know, cheese or something. I don't know. My brain is really not right. I think of these things. And so uh, Jesus doesn't summon the servant to come. Instead, he gets up, 
takes a pitcher of water, pours it in the basin, girds himself in the form of a servant, which means he takes uh, his robe and he lifts it up between his legs. So it's kind of like a, you know, uh, can't touch this, whatever that guy was. At, you know, yeah, MC Hammer. Uh, and, he, and he tucks it into his, his belt and he begins to kneel down, which he can't do in a robe. He kneels down and he's washing their feet and he's drying them with his, 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 his robe. So the filth is getting on him and he's washing them. And, and he, he goes to do this, and, and while he's doing it, Peter just jumps out and he says, uh, you shall never wash my feet. I'm gonna, not, you're God. You know, he's the first one that says, you know, flesh and blood is not to reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven. He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're not going to wash my feet. Are you kidding me? And this is what we've seen. And this is the, the, the scene that we're experiencing. But I had to repeat a word uh, when we were standing, and the word was new. It's in verse 1. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's four things in that one verse that Jesus knew. The first thing he says is, is he says he knew that his hour had come. Now, his hour had come. We found that in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast when Mary came to him and said, we're out of wine. And he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And what he was saying is, uh, there's only going to be one point in the history of the world where God's going to tell, or man's going to tell God what to do. And that's when they start to crucify me and beat me. And then where God is going to submit to man. And he's saying, you're not going to tell me to perform a miracle, although he did it anyways in respect to his mother. But he was saying, man doesn't tell God what to do. My hour has not yet come where I'm going to be ordered and so what he does is he said in John chapter 2, 7, he says, my hour has not yet come. Again, in chapter 7, verse 30, he says, uh, the scripture says his hour had not yet come. And the Holy Spirit reveals it again in John eight twenty. he says his hour had not yet come. But when we get to the last chapter, which we read last week, John chapter 12, he said, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So Jesus is saying this, and now he goes into the triumphal entry. And here we are in John chapter 13, where he says Jesus knew that his hour had come. And then we're going to see it one more time in the book of John at the end of this 24-hour period, chapters 13 to 17. Jesus will, will uh, say, Father, the hour has come. And at that moment, he'll be apprehended, and they're going to start to beat him, mock him, spit on him, ridicule him, crucify him, spear him, kill him. He's going to go to the cross, he's going to go to the grave, and then he's going to go to glory. So at this moment, one of the things he reveals to us that he knew was that his hour had come. And, and that's interesting. He knew what was awaiting him. And he wasn't flustered. It wasn't like he was lamenting over in the corner in a fetal position, shaking, knowing that uh, the torture that they would put upon him, the most brutal death ever invented by man, crucifixion, he died of suffocation. He knew all that was awaiting him. He wasn't over in the corner in a fetal position, shivering and shaking, fearful and frightened. He knew, which many of us should know, is that we are, we're immortal until the Father's finished with us. We don't have to be afraid. We're already dead. I, Rob McCoy, have been crucified with Christ. I don't live my life for myself. And that's what ego is, self-preservation. And we, we tend to avoid pain because we want to protect ourselves. And, and we're already dead. We live for Christ as Christians. So he knew his hour had come that he should depart this world. And the four things that we, we see that Jesus knew is he knew that, that the time had also come for Judas to betray him. We see that in the text. He knew Judas would betray him. He knew that the devil had entered into his heart. And, and Judas is mentioned eight times in the Gospel of John, which is fascinating to me because John started walking with Jesus at 16 years of age. 
And at 16 years of age, you're impressionable. The Bible says, remember thy creator in the days of your youth because you're passionate about life. And things have a huge impression on you. And John is seeing the, 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 the injustice of what, of what Judas did. And he's critical of Judas. And he stole from the money bag. And he, 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 he was a liar. And he was a thief. And he, was, he betrayed you. And, and, and he knew that, that Jesus knew that this was in Judas's heart. He knew that the devil had entered him. He knew that this would happen. The devil having already been put into Judas's heart, that he would betray him in, in verse 2. He knew this. And yet he still loved him. Matter of fact, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, nobody knew it was Judas because Jesus didn't reveal his hand. He treated his enemies and his friends the same way. You know, I, I told my son when, when, he was practic- when he was getting ready for football early on, I've shared this with him continually, both boys, I said, when you compete, you compete as though both your teammate and your opponent were Jesus. And that's how life is. We should love our enemies and do good to those who spitefully use us not carry a chip on our shoulder or bitterness. And, and the way I interacted with Jeff, God convicted me of that. I, I hope that, that maybe internally I was processing it and externally I, I didn't offend him. I tried not to. And yet, Jesus knew this uh, about Judas. And, and, and the thing about Judas is I don't really think Judas understood the significance of what he was doing. I don't think he realized the ramifications of what he was participating in. Oftentimes in our culture, uh, especially in politics and and city council, city government, uh, state government, federal government, we look at people that have opposing views and we say, you know, they're good people that have bad ideas. That's a good way to look at folks, good people with bad ideas. Because ideas have consequences and carry with them consequences. But you follow it all the way back and, and they they have embraced this and they have even established these theories and these philosophies that have affected the world. Initially, it was probably just a way to cope with life, but they had formulated. You think of Karl Marx. His father was uh, an Orthodox Jew who was hypocritical and he had finally given up on religion and wanted to establish a world where religion didn't exist. And so he put together communism of which Lenin would embrace and Trotsky and they'd put together the Bolshevik Revolution and communism would embrace through uh, much of the world and, and billions of people would die from something that happened from a boy who was hurt by a father who was a hypocrite. Uh, you look at Hitler and he, he was incensed by Jews because when he was impoverished, he saw them flourishing because they applied the truths of God and lived by the commandments and God blessed them and he was always embittered by that and created through Mein Kampf and another of others an anti-Semitism that wiped out millions of Jews, six million Jews. And I don't know that either knew the ramifications, but in time they started to grasp them and, and they were fully involved in them. You know, they give an award out to, um, to politicians in America called the Maggie Award. Uh, uh, quite a few of them received it this year, the Maggie Award. The Maggie Award is given to folks who are pro-choice and they, they support the pro-choice movement and it's, it, the, the award is named after Maggie Margaret Sanger. You do a little historical study on Margaret Sanger who was the founder of Planned Parenthood and you find out a woman who was a eugenicist and this, is not, this isn't stuff that you have to make up. It's not hard to find. Margaret Sanger was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was a eugenicist. A eugenicist, she believed... Uh, in the annihilation of the of the of the uh, what, what she called the undesirable races, she wanted to go into New York and wipe out the black race, the the the, the African American community. She created this idea of a of a purified race, a eugenicist. It was it was what Hitler followed later, 
And, and based on these things that she had established and, and the foundation of Planned Parenthood and following through with this, we look at it as a woman's right to choose and we've, they've presented in a number of ways and they put forward uh, Roe v. Wade in 1973 through judicial fiat and over 50 million babies have been aborted since 1973, a wholesale slaughter. And now we're watching as these videos are coming out and what's fascinating about these videos is that they're uncut. They just put them forward. People watch them. And I believe these videos are going to be to the abortion industry what Uncle Tom, Tom's cabin was to the slave trade in the Civil War. I hope it is. Yet, instead of allowing this to go forward and just see, let people see it for what it is and what people said, you have injunctions by judges and people trying to stop the dissemination of these videos. And, and I, I look at people like that and I wonder... Good people, bad ideas that are resulting in the death of half of my generation. We're watching as they're indulging in selling human parts. Have you seen any? They, they, they cut through the skull of a child for a brain. How did we get here? How did we get here? Yet God knows. God knew about Judas. But I don't think Judas knew the ramifications of what he was doing. I, don't, I think some of these people that are embraced in the pro-choice movement, some of these people that follow this, I don't think they know the ramifications of what we're dealing with. And when we see these videos, it's almost like looking in a mirror and seeing yourself and going, what have I done? This is obnoxious. I pray that there would be conviction by that, that we would see it for what it is, as Judas did. He was burdened at the end. He realized what he had done in the end. But Jesus knew that he would betray him. He knew what was going on, and he allowed it to continue. He allows it to continue today. He longs that we would be, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a a conscience for the world. And we would stand for these things. I'm, I'm baffled that the church is silent. This is worse than the Holocaust. And I get scourged in the media if I run for office that I would say something like that, equate the abortion industry to the Holocaust. They 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 look at that as awful. The other thing that Jesus knew is that the Father had given him all things. He knew that everything was in his control. The Father had yielded to him. And in obedience to the Father, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a passive um, person in the midst of a Passover plot that was going to... He, Jesus said, no man takes my life. I willingly lay it down. Husbands, your wives don't live with you. Your wife doesn't live with you because she has to. She willingly serves you. We willingly serve the Lord. It's not out of obligation, but out of adoration. That was Jesus. He knew that the Father had given him all things, yet he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then the fourth thing that Jesus knew, which was fascinating to me, is he knew where he, where he had come from and where he was going. He, he had this, this um, conviction, and he had this, this strength. And, and there's, there's something about somebody who's comfortable in their skin. They know who they are. He knew, he knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going. He had work to do. His face was set like a flint on the way to the cross. He wasn't going to waver from it. He knew what, what atrocities awaited him. He knew what brutality awaited him. And, and yet he, he knew that the cross was awaiting him. He knew that the grave was awaiting him. And he knew that glory was awaiting him. He knew all of these things. And it says in, 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 the, in the passage that we read, and I, I had you all repeat he loved them to the end at the conclusion of verse one jesus said having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end he called them his own he owned them at a time when most of them would have abandoned him i I was told by brett about a movie called child 44 and and i don't it's rated r i wouldn't recommend there's violence and 
And, and I'm not upset with Brett. I really enjoyed the movie. I just, some of you are opposed to that and you don't want a pastor watching our rated film. There's other churches, go find one. Um, I, 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 and I'll explain, my, my message will make sense as to my statement there. That's not, you know, just caustic and flippant. There's a reason to it and I'll explain in a moment. But as I watched this, it was Soviet Russia in 1953. Um, Stalin was in complete control. You had a KGB agent who had been raised in an orphanage, uh, risen in the ranks as a war hero. And uh, his wife had married him because she was afraid that if she didn't, he, uh, you know, he would give her up and kill her. And it, it goes through this where he falls in love with her. He protects her. He loses his KGB office. He's sent to the outskirts of Siberia. He's pursuing a serial killer. His whole life comes to a place where he doesn't abandon his family, he doesn't abandon his wife, to great expense to himself. Jesus, at this moment, uh, he could have he let him go. They were all going to bail on him when he would be apprehended. They, the, the shepherd was struck, the sheep would scatter. Jesus could have bailed on them and just said, you know what, it's not worth it, let them all go. But he stayed and he loved them to the very end, to the point where he would say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they, they would abandon him. But he loved them to the very end. He called them his own. He loved them to the end. And, and the word end means to the uttermost. He loved them completely, even though he was aware of their past failings. He was aware of their present failings. He was aware of their future failings. You can think of their past failings, endless ones, where they were wanting to call down, they called them the sons of thunder, that they didn't embrace Jesus, and they said, let's call down fire on this town. Jesus is like, back off, fellas, you know? They were brutal. And, and he, he loved them when they lacked faith. He, he, he would marvel at the faith of Gentiles, and, and the disciples would, well, wait a minute, what about us? And, and he says, oh, you of little faith, where is your faith? And he, 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 he saw their lack of faith. He still loved them. They were disobedient. He still loved them. They lacked sensitivity. He still loved them. He, he forsook their future failings. Uh, Peter would deny him three times before the rooster would crow. He'd know about it. And the very first thing he did when they came to him, he said, go tell Peter I've arisen. He loved them to the uttermost. He was aware of their present failings. You, you look at the same account in Luke 22 when they're around the table. And you know what they're doing in Luke 22? They're arguing who's the greatest among them. Jesus has got his thing, his robe, and he's washing their feet. And they're arguing who's the greatest among them. I would have just said, you, what are, you are losers. I have worked with you for three years. You've seen the dead rise, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see. You've seen me walk on water. What, did you, what is your problem? <laughs> he didn't give up to it. He just, he loved them. He loved them to the very end, past their faltering and their failure and their future flaws. He saw all their vulnerabilities. And you know why? Because he would see their eventual victories. He didn't see them for who they were, but who they'd become. He loved them without limits. That's agape love. I love you in spite of where you are now, and I love you for who you'll become. You know, it's fascinating in the church, we only tend to see people's past failures. We assess whether we're going to have a relationship based on whether we like them, and that's based on their past. Sometimes we can't forget their past. And, and sometimes it has to do with trust issues. And I would say that people will have a past. Um, and, and the way you build trust is with truthfulness and truthfulness over time. If someone says, I'll never do it again, well, the Bible says bear fruit in accordance with repentance. 
that fruit is a life where you're not doing that anymore. It's, it's a life focused on others. And, and, and this is the idea, although as Christians we, we tend to see each other only in our past failings, oftentimes we assess people on their present vulnerabilities. Well, that person's a little hot-headed. That person's quirky. I assess Jeff because he wouldn't like me. He doesn't smile. He's always grumpy. My wife looks at me at times and she'll reach over and I've got this thing where and I'll just be, you know, list, listening to somebody like this and she'll reach over and touch my head. You need to relax that. You just need to just, you need to just relax. Just relax. Just relax. And it irritates me and also convicts me at the same time. I'm like, don't. <laughs> now watch what happens next in verses four and five. It says, he rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, and after that he poured water in a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel with which he was girded. And here you see a picture worth a thousand words. And Jesus has given us a picture here. It's a visible picture. And what he's doing is, is before he teaches them, he touches them. Before he teaches them, he touches them. I like that. And I got to tell you, one way to reach my wife um, where, you know, if, if I, if I want to touch her in such a way that she's moved and and she just calms down is I rub her feet and and that it's like it's like rubbing the belly of a lizard you know <laughs> have you ever seen those toys where they're they're standing up straight and you press the bottom and they go you know that's what you do when you rub someone's feet they just go oh. there's just something about feet imagine Jesus going in Jesus just going in there and starting to wash his feet and he's touching them before he's teaching them and he's, he's doing this. He's taking the place of the lowest servant. He's humbling himself. He's taking the lowest servant's job. And he begins to wash their feet. And why did he do this? Why did he do this? And this is a question where we're all wondering. A lot of us think, well, he's showing us humility. There was more to it. I mean, there were two things that were very apparent as to why he did it. First of all, he was pricking their proud hearts. I mean, they were arguing who is the greatest, and Jesus takes the lowest position. Here's God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand, who knows every thought they're thinking, knows everything about them and knows and has read the entirety of the room. And they're all arguing who's the greatest and he begins to take the lowest position in the room to prick their proud hearts and he's washing their feet. And while they're arguing about who's the greatest, there he is. And he's, he's basically rebu- re- rebuking their, their actions of selfishness and pride. And you know, Brett did that to me and he didn't even know it. And he hates being the illustration of this, but it's true. His response to everything that I was facing, he was facing it too. His response convicted me. I'm there elevating myself over Jeff and frustrated as though I, you know, I deserve a little better than this. And I'm watching him do nothing, but this is so cool. How many people have been touching? Praise the Lord. And we're sitting in two hours in the border and he's like, oh, look at these folks. It's just so great. Look what they're selling. Isn't this great? I just love this. Shut up. It. The more you think about the scene, scene, the more profound it becomes. Uh, the, the sovereignty of God, humbling himself to the form of a servant, picking up a towel. He, he's Lord and master, but he's, he's serving his followers. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. But he would still serve them, even though they were his friends. I, I love what one author says. This author, and I don't remember who said it, I just remember it and I wrote it down. It has well been said that humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It is simply not thinking of yourself at all. 
Let me repeat that and please listen. It has well been said that humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It is simply not thinking of yourself at all. We think very highly of ourselves. We desperately need this in the body of Christ today, a lesson in humility. The church is filled with a worldly spirit of criticism and competition. We vie with one another of who's the greatest. You know, I don't go to pastor's conferences. I, I, I don't go to the Calvary Chapel pastor's conference because my flesh is so vile. I sit in a room with these pastors and, and I listen as they're talking about the size of their church or the building they just built or the, and I'm over there just, I gotta do, I gotta, I gotta fix this. I gotta make this, I gotta make something happen. I gotta, and I, I, this competitive spirit in me and I am sickened by myself. I don't even want to be with me there. I don't want them to have to deal with me there. I feel as though I'm, I'm doing them a, a service by not being in their presence. You may agree or disagree, but that's my heart. And, and you know, they say the joke is the reason why there's Protestant ministers is because the position of Pope is already filled. Okay, thanks. No, it's true. God takes the weak things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise, and the people he usually puts behind the, the stage or the box or the podium are the weakest in the room. They're the ones that have the biggest pride issue. They're the ones that have the struggles. They have the father issues. They have the mother issues. They got the issues. And, and he wants, in, in their brokenness and in their humility, they're effective. But if it, an unguarded strength is a weakness, and, and the pulpits can be caustic and painful, when, when, when pride is there, because you have weak men. When I am weak, God is made strong. God didn't put me here because I, I, the, the, it may be elevated for sight purposes, but it really should be like this. I should be speaking up to you. You guys go into the world all day. I'm like the, the captain of an aircraft carrier with a cabin, you know, the captain's cabin. And you're all the fighter pilots. And you go out there and you get shot at and you come in land. I refuel your plane and pat you on the back. I go back in the cabin for some coffee. I mean, that, that's the insanity of it. And, and, and here, they're being humbled by what Jesus is doing. And, and I, I look at this, I, the idea that the, you know, the church is growing in knowledge, but we're not growing in grace. Our brains are getting fat, but our hearts aren't enlarging. We, we, we pride ourselves in our knowledge. We, we, we spend hours arguing over Arminianism and Calvinism and pre-trib and post-trib and eschatology. And, and we, we just, we just want to dump on people with the expanse of our knowledge. When, when the, the drug addict in, in, in Ventura or Oxnard can't even spell eschatology. We, we'd rather debate all of these issues than invest in the lives of people. We, we'd rather debate than, than clean a, a bathroom or, or, or sit with children in a ministry and work in a parking lot duty. I came in, I saw two, a couple sitting down eating donuts. I said, hey, getting breakfast, huh? And they go, we're just taking a break. We're out in the parking lot. I, and and we, we signed up for the duty. And, and it was almost like you see on their face, I don't know why I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and bless their heart, they were tired and it was a lot of work. But they couldn't sit here and not do anything. And, and they wanted to serve. And humid, hum, humility is the only soil that grace will take root. And, and this is what God is doing. 
And to teach them this great truth, watch what happens next. Jesus teaches this. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, you're washing my feet? You you can't wash my feet. And, And Peter's probably thinking, everyone else here, they're a bunch of idiots. They're a bunch of, they don't get it. I hope they can get out that way. I don't know. If there's a fire, no, I'm just kidding. You can get out, you can get out. Peter's probably looking going, what, did you guys, did you guys get this? I'm the one who figured out that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember when he said he's giving me the keys of the kingdom? You remember? He's God. What are you doing letting him wash your feet? People wake up, Jesus, you don't need to wash my feet. I get it. You are God. I understand the lesson. I, I can't believe you're letting Jesus do this to you. You people are, you people are stupid. And, and Peter's probably thinking, well, it's about time. Jesus is going to address uh, what a good job I've done. He'll probably give me a gold star. But Jesus does just the opposite. Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, Peter, but, we, but you will know after this. And he did, because Peter would recall the event later when he was writing 1 Peter chapter 5. And in verse 5 of chapter 5, Peter would write, be clothed with humility. He would have that vision seared into his mind as he would be preparing to be beheaded. Oh, actually, he was crucified upside down, the Fox's Book of Martyrs says. And, and there it's seared into his mind, be clothed in humility like my Jesus was. It was etched in his mind. Peter said in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. I got to tell you, that is not a good word for marriage. Don't ever use the word never. (laughs) I would say in life, I will never do that. Oh gosh. Yes, you will. (laughs) And he said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, he said, "If, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Jesus, the word wash means wash you entirely. If I don't wash you entirely, you have no part with me. I got to wash you completely head to toe. You have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus says, well, wait a minute. Slow down, Peter. He said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. He says, you've already been washed. You're a believer. You've been cleansed in the blood of the lamb. By faith, you've received me. And and, uh, you're an Old Testament saint, but you'll soon to be a New Testament saint. You're washed, Peter. You've been completely cleansed. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. He says, he was bathed and he's only to wash his feet. What Jesus is saying is, you already took your morning shower. You've already taken your morning shower. And, And that's true, they had bathed. But when they get into the house, the only thing that's dirty is the thing that's been touching the world, their feet. And their feet were filthy. And so he says, you only need to wash your feet. It, it, the rest of you is completely clean. You're clean, but not all of you. Your feet are dirty. For he knew he would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. And, and that's that spiritual principle we see here. Uh, this idea of wash in verses 5, 6, 8, and 12, and 14 is nipto, which means to wash a part of the body. He's saying, I'm not going to wash all of you. I just need to wash a part of your body and primarily your feet. That's what's been in contact. And the word translated wash in, in verse 10 is uh, lauo, which means to bathe all over. So there's two different words here that Jesus is using, and the distinction is important. They had bathed. They had bathed in the morning. They were clean, but there was a part of them was in constant contact with the world, and that was their feet. And this is going to be the application for us in our remaining time together. You see, their feet in their culture were always getting dirty. 
Their feet were always getting dirty. It wasn't that they needed a whole bath. They needed a foot washing. And this spiritual picture is significant for us. This is what we need to glean from the text. And this is what God wants to teach us. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, and if you haven't, you're not washed. You're filthy. You're only cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. He washes you as white as snow because it's his blood that cleanses you of all unrighteousness. You're going to stand before God and give an accounting of your life and you, you can't look at God and say, I'm a good person. You say, well, I am good. I'm good compared to that pastor. I know him. God will say, he's not the standard. I am. He said, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's nobody perfect on this earth. I, I, and God judges your thoughts too and your intentions. He sees it all. He knew complete knowledge, where you sit, the things that you, you haven't revealed to anybody on this earth. He knows. You're filthy. And he says, my blood is here to wash you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And for those who have received Christ, they have been bathed in the blood of the Lamb. They have been cleansed of all unrighteousness. Hebrews ten seventeen says, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Those who trust in the Lord, their sins have been washed away. Sins have been washed away. However, as believers, as Christians, we've been bathed. Spiritually, we've been cleansed. Our sins, past, present, and future have all been wiped. We've been cleansed, amen? We walk in the newness of life. However, as a believer who walks in this world, it's easy to become defiled. Just spend an hour in front of the television set. Don't you feel filthy? You're like, ugh. I mean, the last thing you want to do, I mean, imagine the worst thing you can do, whether you're on the internet or you're watching television or you're listening to just some wicked music or you've just, you know, you've driven to Vegas, you've seen all the billboards on the way. I don't know what it is. Just, whatever just filthies your head. And, and here you are, you've been engaging in the sin of the world. You're just, you know, knee deep in it. And, uh, and somebody calls you and they need prayer. And you're like, okay, let me put on the Christian hat. You know, you, you're so not in the place to pour into their lives. You feel filthy. And, and you, you, you know, God's word doesn't return void, so you're pulling scriptures out and you're just putting them through the phone. And you contrast that with a time where you just finished your morning devotion, you're connected with the Lord, he's just cleansed you, you just had that foot washing. He's washed your mind and the filth and the phone rings and they're like, hey, praise the Lord, I was just praying for you and God gave me a word for you. And, and you see the contrast between the two. Well, this is the picture. We come to a place where we feel dirty at the end of the day. We need to have the parts of our life, the parts of our body that have come into contact with the world, we need to have those washed. 1 John 1, 9, and, and, and they call this the, the, uh, the soap of God, the, the, the bar of soap of God. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all, and the word all in the Greek means all, unrighteousness. I'll give you an example. William Wilberforce, who was the great emancipator of, of the British Empire, who ended slavery in the British Empire, had come to Christ. Now, early on as a child, he had attended a church uh, as a boy. Uh, that The pastor's name was John Newton. John Newton had been a slave trader. He'd come to Christ and became a pastor. He's the one who wrote the, the, the song Amazing Grace. We've all heard it, right? And if you look at it, it says Amazing Grace. If you look at the sheet music, it says words by John Newton, melody unknown. 
Well, they say that the melody, if you listen to it, is an East African slave chant. So he got the melody standing on the decks of a slave ship while he's writing the words, having been convicted and, and given his heart to Christ. He's hearing the moaning in the bottom of the ship in this East African sorrow chant. That's why, that's why that song hits every soul. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It hits you. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. And, and, as, and as John Newton was so touched, and here he was sharing about abolition, sharing about the slave trade, this young boy sitting is so impressionable, is touched, but then he is re- returned to his parents' house who weren't Christians, and they put him into politics, and now he's in the, in the parliament. He's walked away from his Christianity. Although he's been cleansed, he received Christ. He's now filthy in the world. And all of a sudden, there's a renewal. God speaks to him. And his heart returns to the Lord and he goes to find his old pastor. And as he comes to his old pastor, he says, I feel God moving on my heart. I'm in politics, which is filthy. And I feel as though I need to take the orders to go into the ministry. At which point, uh, John Newton looks at him. He says, Wilbur, the last thing you need to do is to go into ministry. God has called you into the political world. And you... And he said, and he said, is that okay? He says, yes, it's okay. He says, but it's filthy. He says, I know it's filthy. He said, I, I feel as though I, I need to stand against the slave trade and end slavery in the empire. And, and John Newton looked at him. He says, blow their filthy ships out of the water. He said, do it, Wilbur, do it. But he said, I want to tell you, you are going to get neck deep in it. You're going to have nightmares about it. You're going to be filthy. You're going to be covered in it. You're going to hear testimonies that will break your heart. It will sicken you. You'll be in the, in, the, in, in the company of people that are vile. You're going to have to be polite to them. You're going to have to engage them. You're going to have to work with them. You're going to stand in rooms filled with Judases, and you're going to love them and wash their feet, Wilbur. It was great counsel from a wise man. You see, we think the Christian life is to be monastic and border our kids behind fences, build high walls with supplies and guns. We don't want to be defiled by the world. And God is saying, you're not defiled, you're already washed. Now get out there and get your feet dirty. And go out there and walk through the streets and bring them to me. And you're going to get neck deep in it. But every day you come to me and I will wash you and I will cleanse you. I'll remove the filth from the parts that have touched the earth. I will be with you wherever you go. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And this is what Jesus is telling them. I I think of this. Our participation with Christ is that we come to him and we confess our sins so they no longer linger in our lives. And that's him washing our feet. And the, and the idea to confess, it says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And the word translated part is meros. It, it ca- carries the meaning participating, sharing in, in something with someone. You, you need to come alongside people that have been in the world and encourage them and wash them. We need to wash one another. Jesus said, what I've done for you, do for one another. And, and to participate with Christ, this communion, sharing in a blessing, is, is, is hindered by sin. God says, listen, it's easy. Your sin hinders your service. 
Here's how you deal with it. 1 John 1, 9, confess it. I'll forgive it. And you know what that is? That's called a foot washing. And we don't just confess it to the Lord, we confess it to one another. Confess your sins one to another. Not unto salvation, but unto restoration. I don't know about you, but whenever you have that secret sin and you confess it to the Lord, it's almost like the enemy says, yeah, God's forgiven you, but people who know you would never forgive you. And you, you operate as though you're a second-class citizen because there's nobody you can trust to, to pour that into them and ask them to forgive you. And you find people like that, people that would gird themselves and, and wash your feet and love you and forgive you. I wrote the whole scene as a picture of forgiveness and cleansing that we can experience daily as we come to Jesus to confess our sins. His mercies are new every morning. We come to the Lord, we confess our sins, he forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Confess in scripture means to speak the same, to simply saying, you're not promising to never sin again because we can't do that. You can say that, I swear to God, I'll never do it again. You will. You will. There's none righteous. Nobody can do it on their own. But rather you say, Father, your word is right. This is sin. I agree with you and I confess it as such and I don't want it anymore. The apostle Paul would say things like that. He'd say, the things I want to do, I don't do them. And those things I don't want to do, those I do. I am screwed up. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, I thank the Lord Christ Jesus. And so the first lesson is what Jesus did is a picture of confessing and cleansing. But this last thing that I close with is absolutely mind-blowing. And this is what touched me. And this is how God used Brett and Jeff and Calvary Chapel Rosa. He did it. Bless me. Look at verse 12 through uh, 17. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments, he sat down again and he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, you, a servant, is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, I don't know that they knew the full ramifications of what Jesus was saying. At first glance, we think he's just humbling himself to serve them, but... uh, What's being communicated here is powerful. Jesus is saying why we need to do this. And this is what's so profound. Why we need to do this. He says, you need to do to each other what I have done to you. You need to do to each other what I've done to you. You need to wash one another's feet. And this is an example I give to you. This is what he's telling them. He says, you need to cleanse each other when you get dirty and when you get defiled. And some people say, well, only God can cleanse. Yeah, that's true. Completely, he's the only one who can cleanse. Only God can forgive. Yes, this is true. I mean, we can forgive when someone's offended us, but completely forgive where he wipes it off the record. Only God can do that. But we have a part to play in the restoration of a saint. God forgives sins, and the Lord tells us to forgive one another as I've forgiven you. God commands us to forgive one another. To the level you forgive, you will be forgiven. You know the parable of the man who owed millions of dollars, and the man forgave him the debt. And then that same man who had been forgiven goes out and finds a guy who owes him a handful of dollars and he's strangling him saying, give me my money. And then when the master who had forgiven the million dollar debt heard what he was doing to this poor fella, he calls him in and at that point he calls him wicked. He didn't call him wicked when he had a debt. He called him wicked when he wouldn't forgive. Brothers, sisters, we forgive. We're patient with one another. We wash feet by forgiving those who've sinned against us. 
Did you hear that? You don't harbor bitterness. We wash feet by forgiving when we hear that someone has blown it. It's amazing in the body of Christ, we're the only army that shoots its wounded. When we hear uh, that, 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 that somebody sinned, we don't restore them. We gossip about them. You, you know what that's like? If you're washing someone's feet when you're gossiping about them? And we're so good at gossiping. We put it in the form of a prayer. Let me tell you what that's like if you're going to wash their feet with gossip. You're going to use boiling water, scold them, and then dry their feet with sandpaper. Galatians, Paul wrote in Galatians 6, he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we restore a brother or sister overtaken in sin, we wash their feet. And too often we turn our backs on them and we gossip about them. You know, when Peter sinned, Jesus didn't turn his back on him. And the first thing he says, go tell Peter that I've risen from the dead. We wash feet when we forgive. Jesus is giving us an illustration about confession, cleansing, and what comes from it. In James, I'm almost finished. In James, he says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The fervent, faithful prayers of a righteous man accomplish great things. He's saying, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you'd be healed. You know, there's a sickness that comes with somebody who has to carry a hidden secret. And to be able to find somebody you can trust to pour that into them and let them forgive you and wash your feet, it's powerful. A foot washer, somebody you feel safe with, they won't gossip all over town. They don't tolerate your sin, but they cleanse you. They, they help you. And this is the last thing. What did Jesus use to wash their feet with? Water. Water. You know what water represents? The word, husbands, wash your wife in the water of the word, bather. How can you bather in a word you're not reading? And, and, and the translation in the Greek for the word word in John 1 is logos or lagos. But where it says, husbands, bathe your wife in the water of the word, the translation for that is rhema, which means uh, the living voice of God where you've spent time in God's truth and God has spoken to you about your wife and you go and, and love on her and wash her in that word that he's spoken to you. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual praises, making melody in your heart one to another. You see, a person comes to you and they confess and you see that person overtaken in sin and the way you wash their feet, the way you wash them, the part that's touched the, word, the world that's filthy is you wash them with the water of the word. And you loving and you speak the truth in love. Truth without love is, is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. You speak the truth in love together. And you wash their feet. And it blows the mind of the world how you can do that. 
I remember those people that experienced the gunman going into their church in Carolina, and there they were forgiving him. You know what that did to the world? They were like, what is this? We take the love of Jesus and the word of the Lord and we apply it to the dirty feet. That's miraculous. And who do we do this to? Verse seven, you are clean, but not all of you. And he was speaking of Judas. For he knew who would betray him and therefore he said, you're not all clean. You know what's fascinating? Jesus didn't get to Judas's feet and do a half-baked job. He didn't go, well, aren't these dirty? I wonder why. Looks like the feet of the devil. (laughs) You get into the world and the filthiest of people in a room surrounded with Judas's and you wash their feet. And you love them so that nobody in the room knows whether you, you know anything about their lives. You don't treat them any differently than the the brother, the sister you love deeply. When I step into the, in, into the city council and I'm sitting with four other council members, I love them just as much as I love you. When I'm sitting with somebody who comes into, into the city council office, I had a woman last week come and sit down and she, she was mean from the start. I, I just loved on her. It was fascinating to me. I could do that with her, but I could go to Mexico and not do it. And you know why I can do it now? Because Brett washed my feet. Let's do that for each other. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for the faithfulness that you would bring us to chapter 13 and for no one else and simply for me. But God, it was for all of us. We're grateful. What a wonderful example you are to us as our father and our friend and our brother. That you being God would humble yourself and wash our feet. Why can't we do it for each other? For our brothers and sisters caught in the midst of sin that we would come alongside them with the water of the word and gently rub off the dirt. And Lord, I know there's folks in the room who've never been completely washed. And they need to receive Christ as their savior. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you're saved. He'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He'll forgive you. You receive his forgiveness by his son who was sacrificed. His blood will wash you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. Judas rejected that. The, 11, the other 11 received it. God says today is a day of salvation. He not only wants to wash you on a daily basis, today he wants to cleanse you right now of all the sin in your life if you've never received him. I'm gonna ask, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, Jesus said, if you profess me before man, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. So there needs to be an action of faith that you need to undertake, and it's gonna be simple this morning. I'm gonna ask in a moment if you wanna receive Christ as your savior. You have to do this before you leave the earth. You gotta you got to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. And today is a chance to make him Lord, to let him cleanse you and wash you. And then every day of your life, he'll be with you. But the act of faith is in a moment when I ask you if you want to receive Christ, I'm going to ask you to act in faith. And all, gonna, all you're going to need to do is raise your hand. He'll, I'll see it. I'll, I'll testify to it. But more importantly, God sees your heart. And you say, well, that's so easy. Well, it is easy, but it costs Jesus everything to make it easy for you and me and all in this room who profess Christ have done it at one time or another so you're in a room of folks that get it 
So here we go as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you want to receive Christ, would you raise your hand right now? Nice and high. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you and you. Anyone else? God bless you, dear. Amen. Lord, thank you for those who completely understand what you've done for them. And by faith, they've received this cleansing. And all of their sins, past, present, and future, your word declares that they've been cast as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. And they're a new creature in Christ. And the God who has bathed them completely will, will wash them daily by the water of, of his living word. And together as a family in Christ, we'll do the same with each other. And so, Lord, we're thankful. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.